Tonight's lecture is the second event in a four-part series that investigates multiple facets of the experience of womanhood and probes questions of women's role in contemporary society and culture. Please join us next week on Tuesday at noon for a book talk with Liza Mundy about her newest work, Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. And I invite you to join me immediately following this lecture on the second floor in our special collections reading room where we have a few materials from our special collections that relate to tonight's topic selected for you to view. Carol Sanger is the Barbara Ehrenstein Black Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. She teaches courses on contracts, family law, and others focusing on reproduction, the legal profession, and law and gender. During her tenure at Columbia, she has spent several semesters as a visiting fellow and visiting professor of law at the University of Oxford, as well as a year as a fellow in the program on law and public affairs at Princeton University. Her recent scholarship is centered on the regulation of abortion, the regulation of maternal conduct, surrogacy, and the law's relation to culture. In addition to her numerous law journal publications, Professor Sanger co-edited Cases and Materials on Contacts in 2013. In 2011, the Center for Reproductive Rights honored her with an Innovations in Scholarship Award, and in 2013, she received the Green Bag Award for Exemplary Legal Writing for the article, The Birth of Death, Stillborn Birth Certificates, and the Problem for Law. Before joining the faculty of Columbia Law School, Professor Sanger taught at the University of Oregon and the Santa Clara University Law School. She has a JD from the University of Michigan and a BA from Wellesley College. Tonight, Professor Sanger will speak about her book about abortion, Terminating Pregnancy in the 21st Century, a book described by Rewire's Katie Klaibusich as the abortion book I didn't know I was waiting for. Please join me in welcoming Professor Carol Sanger to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you very much um, for this warm and, and lovely um, introduction and for the exciting invitation to, to speak here at the Athenaeum. Um, it's an honor to be here. Um, it, among other reasons, this is my first ligature. Um, and I'm very grateful for the chance to share aspects of my book with you in this stunning setting. Um, I, I, I would like to begin by telling you how this book came about. I started thinking about abortion as something I was willing to spend sustained intellectual time with during the first Obama administration. I teach family law, and there isn't that much abortion or reproductive rights in family law. Fa uh, abortion is reserved for constitutional law. And I thought, okay, the doctrine, you know, you get that, privacy, how it fits in. But I felt something was seriously missing from a uh, too dry and too doctrinal of an approach, a look at uh, abortion. So I slowly pieced together the things I was interested in finding out that involved how women experience it, how they experience, and particularly, how they experience the law that regulates the process that only women um, experience, uh, undergo. Now, um, we, the reason that the Obama administration sort of gave me a chance was that, for once, 
everyone I know who works in this field was not um, we were no longer working under the doom cloud of Rose repeal. It was like, okay, we're going to have like eight years where we can think about things more soberly and with, without the pressing need of always uh, thinking that another case was going to be brought that would attempt to overturn Roe. And of course, from my mind, I thought, eight, I'm going for 16. And then I thought, no, 20, you know, I went, kept going out. Now we know that that's not how things turned out. And Vice President Pence has pledged and did repeatedly throughout the campaign to consign Roe to the ash heap of history where it belongs. And um, having made serious inroads into the integrity of the environment and our national immigration policy, the Trump administration has finally turned its sights to um, the matter of women's reproductive rights and health. Um, and they're coming at it very, very strong. In the last two months, we've seen lots of, they, they've, they've geared up. They've, they've manned the Health and Human Services Department. And we can talk about this if you want. But I'm going to continue not on current topics, not on current events. Um, the target of all this has been um, the pronatalist um, targets of contraception and abortion. So joining the states, the federal government is now on the march to make abortion hard harder and hardest to get, legally, financially, emotionally, practically. Um, now the timing of this book, New Ways to Think About the Relation Between Abortion Practices, that is what people do, and abortion law, and new ways to think about fetal power, and about men's relationship to abortion, was not meant to co coincide with the renewed commitment to what, what our government now calls the culture of life. That is a that is a phrase um, first introduced by President Reagan and included used by both of the Bush presidents um, to refer to a, um, a society where um, life is supreme, life meaning um, prenatal life from the moment of conception. Um, and I, I want to say I'm not calling this a maternalistic policy because no one, else, no one helps mothers at all. It's just a pronatalist policy of getting babies out there and then, you know, take them home. Um, but, but, but there's not the sort of supplementary thing that you would see in France where they have pronatal and maternalistic policies um, combined. Now, the... Um, Yeah. So the first, so I want to be the argument that I want to stress and, the, and and spend most time with tonight concerns what I call abortion non-disclosure, or the reluctance of women to talk about abortion at the level of individual experience. Um, that's the first topic. The second is the response to abortion non-disclosure, which um, is the possibility of normalizing abortion normalizing the word, normalizing the practice, and I want to be very clear so that it's a word you can say. I remember that I was at a cocktail party 25 years ago with people who then looked very old to me. Um, I've, I've, I've exceeded their age. Um, and a woman said to her husband, I didn't know any of them, said to her husband, honey, when do we go to Paris? And he said, I don't know when we went to Paris. And she said, you know, it was the year I had the abortion. And when she said that, I took a step back because I assumed the floor was going to open up and hellfire was going to raise up. And I didn't want to get like 
stuck in their maelstrom. So, uh, of course, that didn't happen. And uh, by contrast, when I was teaching in the UK, and we were talking, and I was giving them a, a lecture on um, how we treat teenagers, making them go to court before they can have an abortion, they said, what are you talking about? And I said, uh, that's our system. And they said, well, gosh, I went to the NHS two weeks ago, and she went with me, and she went with me. And I, I thought, well, that's not how it's done. That's not how it's not talked about in the U.S. We we keep it tight. Now, um, so uh, so I I want so I want to begin by unveiling um, some forms of abortion non-disclosure um, and the harms, personal and political, that it produces. And I'll close by reading the last chapter, the um, last paragraph of the book. Um, but I thought it might be helpful to just read the first three paragraphs of the preface so you could have a sense of what the book sounds like and uh, where it stands. And this, will just, this is just to warm you up. Um, so here we go. This is just the first paragraph. Yes, any book about abortion necessarily begins in media race. This is because the problem of unwanted pregnancy does not start with abortion. Abortion follows pregnancy, whether that pregnancy has been much sought after and is highly desired, or whether it is the worst thing ever. Pregnancy in its turn follows sexual intercourse, in most cases, whether that intercourse was calculated, casual, or coerced. To say that abortion falls in the middle of things is to say that abortion is located at a discrete intersection in women's lives. On the one side there is pregnancy, on the other side there is non-pregnancy and the status quo with regard to the number of children. A mother of two remains a mother of two, a girl does not become a mother. Second paragraph. This is not to say that a woman's life necessarily proceeds exactly as it would have had there been no pregnancy and no abortion, though many lives do. For some women, abortion reg registers as a profound loss. Um, the date or projected date of the, of the birth, sometimes reflected upon, sometimes commemorated for years to come. For many others, the core, re the core uh, reaction is one of relief and the welcome return of the preferred, at least for now, non-pregnant self that almost got away. Still other women experience both relief, the most widely reported um, emotion after uh, abortion, and some form of what I would call uh, wistfulness, not regret, but wistfulness that the decision had to be made because the circumstances around the pregnancy, partner, finances, obligations, plans, were just not right enough to proceed. And here's the last paragraph. In this way, every abortion has a context, a set of befores and imagined afters that inform how women's decisions about abortion are made and how they are experienced. It is though on the chronological spectrum of a woman's life, a notional pushpin has been planted on the spot marking the decision. That same pin marks the subject of this book, how women confront and decide about unwanted pregnancy within the complicated structure of constraints, personal, culture, and legal, that frame the issue of abortion in modern America. So that, that's, that gives you a sense. Now, um, I should say that the, argument in, the arguments in this book were um, framed by two existing co 
commitments. And the first was to accept that abortion is legal. That's all. So I'm not arguing about whether or not abortion should be legal. It is legal, even though it doesn't always feel legal. Um, that's, I'll come to more about that. Um, so I don't talk about the morality of, abort, of abortion. That is something the law quite prudently leaves to every, for every woman herself to decide. The second commitment or premise is that women understand what abortion is and what it does. A pregnant, if a pregnant woman, ha and I believe this is true for teenagers as well, if a pregnant girl or woman has an abortion, some months hence there will be no baby. Ending pregnancy is the very point of an abortion, and that necessarily means ending some form of prenatal life, whether embryonic or fetal. For some, this is regarded as an outright killing. For others, it isn't. But what I, but I stand fast on this. I, don't, I reject the idea that women do not understand what they are doing and that they must be informed over and over and over again through increasingly inventive laws um, that the pre that prenatal life in any form is just the same as a living person. Um, a good example of this are laws that require women to have an ultrasound as part of the legal process of informed consent. Um, Pre-abortion ultrasounds are often carried out for medical purposes. The physician may want to date or locate the pregnancy before performing an abortion. But mandatory ultrasound is done for political purposes. Um, the woman is scanned and then she's asked in the words of the statute, do you want to look at the image of your unborn child? In some states, women are, physicians must read out scripts and the legislature has, to, has provided that they must show where the extremities are, they must uh, play the heartbeat if there is one. Um, they have to show all organs that are identifiable and all identifiable body parts like the skull. Um, now, it's clear what this is about, I hardly need to say. The idea is that if you look at the image of your unborn child, so identified, if you actually see your victim, look it in the eye, so to speak, you will grasp its moral and its relational significance, and having accessed this new information, you will not proceed. This is quite clever, clever in the sense of diabolical, in that it commandeers a practice, the happy moment of the first ultrasound, um, that is, that women with wanted pregnancies uh, in, in look, anticipate, bring friends, get multiple copies of the scan, put it on the refrigerator. I've seen it on Christmas cards. I mean, you know, it's babe shower invitations, another place it pops up. Um, and it takes that kind of social moment, the sort of like um, first act of Showing the baby's picture is like a first act of, of prenatal care, in a sense. You know, people like to show those. Um, uh, and, and makes women who aren't going to, whose, whose pregnancy is very finite in duration, undergo it too. So as you're lying there, women know how they're supposed to feel, and they know that mostly they don't feel that way. Um, so this is quite cruel, I think. 
So in this way, the regulations are not out to obtain medically informed consent so much as morally informed consent. And if women didn't get the idea of what they're supposed to think about all this from the ultrasound requirement, they'll get another chance when they learn, as part of the informed consent procedure, that they will have to bury or cremate the aborted fetal remains. This is a new one. This is one of the latest uh, re regulations that, that Texas and about 10 other states have already imposed. And there's a huge network of um, anti-abortion lawyers who have a template and they pass the material around from state to state so the legislation all looks quite the same. Um, okay, so that's, that's the latest twist or twisted requirement in the um, anti-abortion arsenal, this um, having to bury fetal remains. Okay, now we know that being required to look or even voluntarily looking, as many women do in Canada. There are many doctors, when it's not a requirement, say, would you like to see the ultrasound? Uh, some look and some don't, and uh, it doesn't change people's minds. Um, and so what's going on? I think it's like this. The state, it's as though the state is saying, yeah, yeah, we've read Roe v. Wade. We know we can't prevent you from doing this, but we can sure make you pay. And the payment is the make you feel worse, make you feel guilty, make you not talk about it, and we'll tell why that's so important in a moment. So we can see in light of such regulations why some women who terminate a pregnancy, an unwanted pregnancy, feel like they have done something that's borderline criminal. Um, and a major purpose of my book is to show women that to the extent they feel guilty or ashamed or reticent to speak about an abortion at the level of a personal experience, they might be heartened to know that there is an entire structure of American law and culture aimed at bringing about exactly that result. So I always think it's helpful to know when you're feeling crazy, that's especially true for women, I think, that actually you're not crazy. There's craziness around you that's making you feel crazy, and I think this sort of applies here. If you feel guilty, I'll give you some more examples of why you feel guilty, um, why, why you don't talk about it. It's, it's, it's not inevitable that abortion has to be uh, so reprehensible. Okay, so let's turn to women's reticence to speak, because despite the statistics about the number of women who decide on abortion, currently a low of 700,000 a year, down from about a million 200,000 maybe six years ago. So the numbers have been going down. The best thinking is that it's because of an increased use of um, uh, birth control. And, but um, in, in spite of 700,000 women a year choosing to have an abortion, um, many people think they don't know anyone who has ever terminated a pregnancy. So, excuse me. Put another way, one in three women, and this is uncontested numbers, will have an abortion sometime during her reproductive life, which goes from what, 15? Although now I think periods start at 10, I'm not really sure. Um, but, but from, let's say, 15 to 40. Uh, and that's a modest size. So it's, it's, not un, it's not surprising that at some point a pregnancy may occur that was unplanned or unwanted, not always the same thing. And I also wanted to say, when we're talking about unwanted pregnancies, the line between a wanted pregnancy and an unwanted pregnancy is very fluid. 
something can start off very wanted and things happen. A, a, the man leaves, she loses her job, they get a bad prenatal diagnosis. So that things can happen and sometimes it can go the other way too, but largely it's um, not. So, excuse me. So, Although this is the, the, the consequence of women not talking and, and there being no, no quiet conversation about abortion is that we as citizens and as constituents are under-informed about the practice of abortion that is all around us. Um, who has them, why they have them, how they deliberated, what was important, whether there could have been something that would have made them not have an abortion. We don't know, we don't know because we don't, because no one talks about it. So we don't even know that there's abortion silence exactly because you don't know what nobody talks about. You do know that there are cars in the parking lots of abortion clinics. You do know that there are protesters out in front. You know something's going on, but you don't know who. Um, and so the consequence of this dead zone of information is that nothing is offered up to supplement or contradict the public um, narrative, the dominant public narrative that now circulates so freely about who the women are who have abortions and why they do it. They are contraceptively careless. They are, if they're teenagers, promiscuous. They are, and this is perhaps the most important, just downright selfish. They only care about themselves. Now, Edward Munch gives us one image of an aborting woman. There. This is from 1892. I, I will say later, I, I'm, two chapters in the book um, concern images of fetuses in art and sculpture, painting and sculpture over time. And this is so interesting. Here's the little fetus down here, and here are the sperms. Very interesting framing. Um, and there is she, you know, it's called the Madonna, but I think we agree it's a very licentious um, image. Um, so, now the accusation of selfishness bothers me a lot. And in this part of my notes, I had what angers me. Then I crossed out anger because I didn't want to seem too angry. So I just put bothers. But I think this is extremely problematic. 66% of women who have abortions are mothers already. Okay? That's important to know. And here I want to turn to the law of the UK for a moment. It's not, not the greatest law because you, women have to give a reason. The, the legislation, the Abortion Act of 1967, um, gives three reasons you can three reasons you can choose from and you have to tell your doctors in fact you have to tell two doctors what your reason is and then they decide if they think it's true then they give you permission you can go ahead and but the third reason is the one that interests me the most it is that the woman is seeking an abortion because not to do so would affect the mental or physical health of the woman or her existing family or her existing children so I think I like that, that the law takes on that a decision to have an abortion may be in the best interest of existing children. Um, and, and that's something that, it, that it's embedded in the law I think is important. Now let's just look at a few examples of um, abortion non-disclosure. Women don't tell their friends, except maybe a very good one who will drop them off or pick them up afterwards. Women don't always tell their parents, girls don't always tell their parents. 
Mothers rarely tell their daughters or children, and wives don't always tell their husbands, though most do. The big exception is when there's any sort of domestic violence in the family, then there's not disclosure. One young woman described in an op-ed piece in the New York Times a few years ago how after her middle-aged mother confided that she herself had had an illegal abortion in 1972 because her daughter was going off to college, so she wanted to prepare her, the daughter wrote, it took a few years for the shock to wear off. She, the daughter had thought that a right to abortion some, was something only other women needed, not my family and certainly not my mother. And because I'm here and I trust this audience, I'm going to just read you one other excerpt from the book about telling. Another woman described telling on a need-to-know basis. My lover who impregnated me, the man I lived with and later married, a friend who loaned me money, women who helped me locate a clinic, so she's got all of Boston in here, and finally, in an only on the left moment, the entire steering committee of a strike I was involved with during the course of an argument about who should get arrested. I couldn't risk civil disobedience and miss the clinic appointment. So there we have uh, the, need to, the need to know basis. Now, many women with insurance pay out of pocket so that the procedure won't appear in their computerized um, insurance records. Women with family doctors don't always tell them, and many prefer to travel to a physician further from home who doesn't know them. And here, when we're in a metropolitan area, we don't feel that so much. People can, there are many options here. It's quite different in the Midwest and the, in the southern states and the plain states, so where, where, it is, where there may be one or two clinics in a state. Um, so this, this traveling is important. Even clinic waiting rooms risk unwanted exposure. As one patient explained, you don't want to know who's here, and you don't want to be recognized, and you never want to see them again. And I'll just say that there's been some interesting work done on, it's like a um, trickle-down theory of secrecy. Now, women don't want to buy their home pregnancy tests at the local pharmacy. Um, they want to go further away, as one woman said, I don't want that kid in the Walmart knowing that I think I might be pregnant before my family knows. So they traveled to do that. Uh, and, and the home pregnancy test was a very big revolutionary thing because it put the control over whether you know you're pregnant back in the hands of women and not in the hands of a doctor. And I must say, I had in previous, giving, having given this once before, I said, and so it had nothing to do with doctors or rabbits. And no one had any idea. I was college audience, what I was talking about. They said, did you mean to say something else other than rabbits? I said, no, I, I meant rabbits. And they said, what do they have to do with it? I said, I never knew. But um, OK, consider this, this little example. If you sign up with a new gynecologist, you have to give a reproductive history. And you're always asked, how many pregnancies have you had and how many live births? And I would say that I don't think these are always filled out in complete candor um, by women who just, the, even though it's with your doctor who you trust. Okay. Now, one way to describe these various forms of, of concealment is as, as an exercise of privacy. And um, we know the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade uh, located the right to choose an abortion in a constitutionally protected right to privacy. And I use privacy here to mean not only the right to make the decision, but the right to keep it to yourself. And this is something called informational privacy. Who gets to know what about you? 
Um, and we think that informational privacy falls within a zone of personal control, that something is yours alone to reveal, not because it must be hidden, because it's nobody else's is beeswax, um, what you're experiencing. So for despite our hugely indiscreet and confessional culture, I don't need to give any examples, um, there still is an established right to be left alone, which most people regard as part of their social due. Cicela Bach characterizes this aspect of privacy as, quote, control over access to one, to, pardon me, control over access to what one takes to be one's personal domain. Now, abortion is understandably just such a matter. Um, there are, it's known that there are certain things people don't like to talk about with anyone. And there are four particular areas um, that, that, have, that are surrounded by privacy. Things connected to the body, things connected to sex, things about reproduction, and medical treatment. Those are things that people are sensitive about. And I want to stress that I think there are connections among these things. So, for example, there's huge connections between sex and reproductive decisions. Because if you, if you take just, just teenage girls who don't want to tell their parents, many of them don't want to tell their parents, not because they're pregnant, but because the pregnancy reveals the sex, and they weren't the kind of sort of upstanding daughter that their parents thought they were. So this is, and when, when girls explain this, because when you, go to a bi, when you go to a hearing before a judge, they often ask, tell me why you can't talk to your parents. And they say, um, uh, my parents are, fight with each other, this will push them over the brink, or I don't want them to know I've had sex, they kicked out my older sister. They're sort of laughed out, like, buck up, take, you know, just get your punishment, you, you, you know, it's time for your punishment. Um, so I would use as another example Tim Murphy, the representative from Pennsylvania. Do you remember a few weeks ago? I mean, every day we have something new that knocks the last day's news out. But if you can recall, he was he resigned from the uh, the house to spend more time with his family um, because he his his lover, his married lover, had um, out had had publicized emails he sent her where he had suggested in the midst of a pregnancy scare, because she was not um, pregnant, that maybe abortion was an option. And for me, um, I, don't, I don't consider him the poster child for hypocrisy. That's not how I see his value in this debate, um, although he does get 100% from the National Right to Life uh, scorecard. I think that what he shows is a perfect example of how women and men sometimes don't know how they will feel when a pregnancy presents itself that appears calamitous. And so many people say, I would never have an abortion. And then they do, because it's, it, it, life does not proceed exactly as they thought. So I haven't finished with him. I mean, I'm going to think of ways to bring him to the fore, because it's it, I didn't think that was an outrageous conversation he had with his girlfriend. And what would have been revealed by the abortion would have been that they were, if it were known, would be that they had been having an affair. Okay, so um, that's enough for him today. Now, there is another way, this, this comes to the point, um, there's another way to characterize why so many women keep their abortion intentions or their abortion histories 
uh, to themselves. And this is not as a matter of privacy, but as a matter of secrecy. So I want to make this distinction between abortion privacy, um, privacy being something that you do as a matter of your own autonomy or your agency. It's an empowering thing to keep something private when you don't want anyone to know. But I want to contrast that with secrecy, which I think operates from a different motivation. When you keep something secret, I'll suggest it's because you fear that it, you fear that if you don't, harm will follow. And keeping abortion secret is often a response to a woman or girl's um, to the threat or prospect of harm, whether it's harassment or stigmatization or fear of violence, depending on where you live, or loss of cherished or important relationships. So these are real concerns. Clinic protesters armed with nothing more than smartphones have posted women's pictures online, contacted the parents of pregnant minors, and sent abortion patients help, uh, hateful literature in the mail. Those are just three easy examples. Moreover, and here's the, the part that's perhaps distinctive to abortion, what the Supreme Court has called the specter of exposure is not time limited, but it lurks over time. Questions about past abortions have turned up in connection with all sorts of activities, employment applications or interviews, um, political campaigns, and custody fights. We had a doozy of a fight about two years ago in New York City where um, the wife was Catholic and somehow the husband got a subpoena for her medical records and found out that she'd had an abortion after they separated and she got pregnant by somebody else. And he, he was permitted by the court to introduce that into the custody fight on the grounds that it would show her true character, a good Catholic woman who killed a baby and also lies about her her true beliefs. It was it was pretty outrageous, but there it was, and it was all over the daily news, which is a rag, but nonetheless, lots of people, you know, lots of people read it. Um, so, these threats of intrusion or exposure suggest to me the kinds of pressures that push the motivation for non-disclosure disclosure from the preference for privacy to the perceived need for secrecy. And if you think about it, the law sometimes recognizes the need for secrecy around abortion. Women challenging abortion laws in court are permitted to use an alias. So think of Norma McCorvey, who died last year. Um, she became the anonymous Jane Roe. And I got very interested in this because I'd never given any thought to how do you go into court under an alias? Um, court procedures are supposed to be open. Defendants are supposed to know who sued them. I mean, you're supposed to know, there's public record. And so I found that under the federal rules of civil procedure, those are court rules, that there is a way you can apply to the court to go to have your party come in as an, an under an alien and come in anonymously. And the, the ground for doing it is, quote, the common thread is the presence of social stigma or the threat of social stigma or physical harm attaching to the disclosure of identities. And then the court listed, this is in a case, the court listed the kinds of things that you can get on a, a DOE uh, designation for. Mental illness, same-sex prison rape, homosexuality, transsexuality, and the abandonment of your children. 
So you see that abortion is in with a bunch of activities, which we don't generally find, you, you know, when this decision came out, which were sketchy. And, and so we see how, how, abor how abortion lines up with other things that get this anonymous treatment. Now, of course, appearing under an alias or entering a clinic accompanied by tall escorts so that your face can't be seen increases the appearance of furtiveness. You look sneaky. Girls who go for these bypass hearings have to miss school. They have to have a story about where they were. Um, there's one judge in Ann Arbor who used to hold the meetings, uh, hold the hearings at four o'clock in the afternoon, so that they'd kind of go along with soccer practice. Um, okay, and consider here the, the mandatory 72-hour waiting periods. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but in many states, if you go for, you make an appointment with the clinic, you go to the clinic, they do the ultrasound, whatever else they have to do, and then they say, now go home and come back in 72 hours and you can have the procedure. And the purpose of that is because probably you hadn't thought hard enough about whether you wanted an abortion or not, and you need to go home and think about it. It's like... It's quite infantilizing, but that's how it works. And um, um, Iowa is the latest state that just did this. It's under a 30-day review. Um, but when you think about it, and I, I'd like to stick with Iowa, where there aren't that many um, clinics. And then I want to say something about telemedicine, if there's time. Okay. Well, all right. So you, ha you, you, have, to, so you have to be gone for three days. This means you have to take time off of work, you have to arrange for someone to pick up your kids from school, and if you're in a relationship, you have to say something about where you're going. Um, and maybe you have a supportive husband and it's, you can just say, but um, th these are all, you have to lie, and you have to come up with a story in order to exercise your constitutional right to have an abortion. Uh, that's the part that often falls out. This thing that we're talking about as being so regulated is actually not just something you're entitled to do. It's not just legal. It's actually a right. Uh, and no, no other right is treated like this. Um, all right. Now, I, I want to say that, oh, I said I'd say something about, me uh, yeah, I just want to say one thing about, about telemedicine. So in, um, in Iowa it was that, um, Telemedicine is where the doctor's in one place and, and, the, and the nurse is somewhere else with the patient. And so many states are using increasingly medical abortion. Medical abortion is a pill and surgical abortion is a procedure like a vac, uh, manual aspirator. Uh, so to take the, and so what does it take? To, what do you need to get the, the, um, the, um, to, to be prescribed this dual pills, you get two sets of pills. Well, you need to have a pregnancy test because you have to make sure you're pregnant. Probably an, an ultrasound for the purpose of making sure you're not past a certain limit because the medical abortion the pill is only good for up to 10 weeks. Um, that's what you need. There's no touching the woman whatsoever. There's no physician. The, 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 the pregnancy test is done by a, a blood test. The, uh, the pill is done by taking it out of a little cup and swallowing it. And so this was something that was being done through Planned Parenthood in Iowa with telemedicine. States are now banning telemedicine for the purpose of abortion. 
So that's just like cutting it off again, something like a really technologically important advance, which is being singled out for, um, for, and there's just one other thing. See, I get on a roll and I just want you to know everything. Um, you, you, you know directive, physician's directives, which you probably have here. You say, I don't want extreme measures if I'm in a car crash. So many people have those. We think those are an exercise of autonomy. You get to cho choose the way you're going to die, dignity with death, all that. Many states, increasingly, almost all of them now, have a provision that says, except if you're pregnant. Then your directive has no force. It's, 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 it doesn't count. So this is just another piece of this larger picture. Okay. Now, the distinction, um, so my objection is that it's no good for women to go around feeling empowered because they're using, they're exercising their rights to privacy, when in fact secrecy is masquerading as privacy. And that's a hard thing to realize, that you're not, not telling people because I control my own domain, but because you're afraid of what will happen. Now, this distinction matters with regard to how women experience the procedure, the decision, and sometimes its social aftermath. Shame makes everything harder. But abortion secrecy has consequences beyond the experience of individual women. Um, it affects how abortion is discussed at more public levels. And Think of and, and so I want to I want to introduce a trickle up theory. We have private talk. This can move to a broader public talk, and I don't mean um, standing on a soapbox in the in the wherever you keep the soapbox here, but you know I mean it gets into more discussion at a at a broader level. It's something that abortion is something that might be discussed and not. Uh, not, not no one is terrified to talk about it. And that, in turn, leads to greater political discussion. And I want to give you the example, um, you know, what I think. We now have a distorted political conversation about abortion because we have no counter story. We don't know that two-thirds of all women who have abortions are mothers. We don't know who they are. And I believe that everybody probably cares about someone who had an abortion. They just don't know it. And that, that seems to me a real lost opportunity for the most quiet sort of political activity. Women don't usually think of themselves as political actors when they just live their lives. But I want to suggest that having a conversation, noticing a junior, you know, a junior cousin or someone in your family is like looking for someone to talk to is a place where there's room to make this, this small gesture. And what do I think it's going to um, accomplish? Well, I think that the best example I can give is um, in a 30-year period, so do I think moral change is possible, that we can be persuaded to see things differently? In a 30-year period, homosexuality, as it was called 30 years ago, moved from being a a mental illness diagnosis and a crime to marriage equality. That's in a generation and a half, which is a very small period. Um, breast cancer used to not be discussed until Betty Ford decided she would come out in the 70s and say, 
I have it. I was treated. And um, there's a lovely little vignette in the book where a woman named Mrs. Fanny Rosnow called the New York Times and said, I had breast cancer, and I would like to form a group of women who could talk about that they had breast cancer. And they put her through to the society pages because breasts, I don't know. And, 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 and the guy said to her, Mrs. Rosenau, the words breast nor cancer will appear in the pages of the New York Times. So I was just thrilled when Angelina Jolie had a big smacker of an article that it described in great detail all her, her the procedures she had, the reconstructive surgery and so forth. So things do change. And you may recall that the slogan for the early breast cancer awareness was don't die of embarrassment. Um, and that was taken even more strongly in, in early AIDS advocacy where the, the um, slogan was um, silence equals death. You may recall those um, posters. So um, now I also want to say if you, to, to make my case that we can change how we think about things, think about smokers. I used to love movies where there was this moment of frisson. It was like an early awareness that something called sex was around when the hero would bend down and light the heroine, Betty Davis usually, cigarette, and their faces would be very close and there'd be a little flame for the cigarette. Okay, now if you show that same movie to, pe to children or young teens, they say, Mom, they're smoking. I mean, and it's, it's considered vile. And why are we watching this movie that's teaching them bad habits? So I think that's another example where we have become demonized something that used to be popular and you could be the Marlboro Man and all that. Now, I'm not saying that privacy is always good and secrecy is always bad. We know that there's a long-standing conception of privacy, shielded practices of domestic violence for hundreds of years from public scrutiny. We also know that secrets are sometimes valued and beneficial. There are pastoral secrets, trade secrets, lover secrets, national security secrets, and so on. What matters, I think, is that we recognize the qualitative difference between these two modes of concealment privacy and secrecy when the subject is abortion. When set alongside privacy, secrecy reveals itself as a far more ominous proposition, more psychologically taxing and more socially corrosive, even if it may make the secret keeper feel more secure. Um, okay, now... Um, I'm not a shouter, so when, when I say people... Sh and I want, I've been accused of everything, but I've been ac accused of um, putting too much burden on women. Women have already had to have suffer through needing to decide about an abortion, and now I want them to talk about it. Well, I do, but I don't want them... I, I'm uh, Lindy West, who some of you may know, or Amelia Bono have a group, have organized a group called Shout Your Abortion. And they shout at rallies, and they shout wherever they want to shout. And that's good for some people. I'm not so much of a shouter, but I think you choose your moment, and you can become a resource for somebody else, and that that's incredibly important, and that public discussion will in turn affect the substance of, eventually, of political discussion. We got marriage equality in part because kids told their parents, I'm here, I'm queer, get used to it. You know, whatever, that was one of the slogans. And, and, and congressmen, too, realized that their children were being denied rights that other families had. Now, um, 
who, uh, and the reason Amelia Bonow started this was because she wrote an email to Lindy West that said, why am I not telling anybody about this? I live in one of the most liberal cities in the world. I know everything about my friend's sex life, and I won't repeat some of the things she has in there, but I had to ask the Harvard whether the word penis was okay in, in, in the book, and they said, I don't see why not. I said, <laughs> fine, <laughs> there it is. Um, so, so she said, I want to thank Planned Parenthood. They saved my life. And Gloria Steinem, in her most recent autobiography, dedicates it to the London doctor who in the 1960s gave her the go-ahead to have an abortion. And he did it, though. He made her promise something in exchange, that she would promise to do something with her life. So I think she did. Now, um, okay. So... Yeah, there are many things we haven't talked about in the past. Miscarriage is one. That is now something women can tell a friend about and, and find a huge amount of, of, of um, comfort. I, uh, I teach a course on abortion in the spring usually, and when the students go home for spring vacation, this has happened every year, they come back and they say, you know, a funny thing happened when I went home. My mother saw my materials, and she said, hey, you want to go for a walk after dinner? And then followed a revelation. And a, a, a counter version to that happened um, to me last week. I was just walking down Broadway in my zone of privacy, and a friend came up and said, um, hey, I just finished your book. And the minute I finished it, I did just what you wanted me to do. And I thought, my book does not come with instructions. It doesn't come with a link to a YouTube video on what to do. Um, I said, uh-huh. And she said, I called my daughter immediately and told her that 26 years ago, I had an abortion. So I said, I don't know why. I, I said something like, well, how did it go? Or I didn't, I didn't know what to say. And she said, and you know what my daughter said to me? She said, Mom, if you felt you needed to unburden yourself, I'm glad you called. <laughs> so that was a surprise. Now, um, talking is just one social mechanism. Oh, I've gone over. Okay, okay, wait, wait, wait. Let me see. I'll stop. Um, so I'll give you one example. So there are other ways to have things come out, and I'm just going to use the New York Times as one. The New York Times is very influential in, in um, normalizing same-sex unions because in their marriage section, which used to be called weddings, they changed the name to celebrations because they put out an announcement they wanted to include same-sex unions, commitment ceremonies, this is before marriage. And so I thought, bold, bold. And I teach family law, so I always read those sections because also it's fun. Um, <laughs> I think I've just about aged out of doing that, but okay, so I read them forever. and. Uh, four years ago, I came upon the huge wedding announcement of Udonis Haslam. Anybody? Plays basketball for the Miami Heat. And his wife, I won't, I won't read it to you, but, and his girlfriend, he married his sports casting girlfriend, and they announced in their wedding announcement that they'd had a kind of rough spot in their sophomore year because she got pregnant and he was practicing for the NBA, which I didn't know you could do, and um, they had to make a decision about an abortion. And so they just that was just in there with who made her dress and what the cake looked like, and I thought, 
I thought, this is a moment. This is, this is important. So the next day, the pro-life blogosphere was like blowing up and saying, the New York Times was just trying to normalize abortion. And the pro-life, pro-choice blogosphere was saying, hey, the New York Times was just trying to normalize abortion. <laughs> and I thought, yes, yes, that's quite right. Now, I just wanted to, um, two last points. Oh, I'm almost done. Um, I haven't said anything much in this lecture about the fetus. And I think, but the book itself takes the fetus very seriously. And one thing I wanted to do was, um, uh, I wanted to, uh, I, I researched as much as I could about how the fetus appears in art and in sculpture over time. And it's fascinating. And it goes back to Mesoamerican sculptures and, and, and up to Damien Hirst, who just put out some big fetuses. Um, in, in Saudi Arabia, I think. Okay, and but this is one that I really like. This is a silk tapestry piece, a piece of it. It's much larger, about 1410. It's in Belgium. It's in, it's in Frankfurt now, but it came from Belgium. And you can see the little baby Jesus here and then the little John the Baptist right there. That's Mary and that, that's, that's Mary and that's Anne, her pregnant cousin. And so I thought, what do you know? Little homunculi riding along. But some of you may remember from Bible training that this is in the Gospel of Luke, that when they passed each other like that, um, John leapt for joy. And so, okay, so that was nice. He, 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 asserted, he felt the divine presence of Christ, and he leapt for joy. So interesting. Then I started researching the history of, of Luke and this moment, and it turned out that it became very significant later when the followers of Jesus and the followers of John were competing for who was meant to be the real Messiah. And this was not, this was not a settled matter. And the argument was made that he was older because he was more physically apt. And um, and that you know he could jump for, leap for joy, and Christ just sat there like a lump, and and this meant that we should be we, John had was was more was more was more promising. Um, well, I don't know how I did that. All right. Um, so I thought that was interesting, and they settled it by saying that John actually was paving the way for Christ, not preempting him, and that was all settled. But when I thought about it, I thought, oh, so the fetus has always been political. It has always been connected to things outside the realm of gynecology and fetal life. It's just a lovely, it's not quite a blank slate, but it is something that the anxieties or the obsessions of the present time can be um, put, a, put on. And, and so this struck me as a very interesting thing. And there are, there are stories about rabbinical fetuses and Buddha had a beat Buddha as a fetus. It's so interesting, but I won't go. I won't go there. I will instead just read you the last. No, I won't even do that. I hope you're not hungry. Okay, here is the last paragraph of the book. Abortion silence has deep roots in patterns of social and private life, in etiquette, in religious commitments in the demands that a steeply gendered culture makes on women's self-conceptions. As abortion becomes less stigmatized, as it will in time, it will come to be regarded like other medical decisions, 
thoughtfully taken and exercised without a gauntlet of picketers on the pavement or hard looks at home. For now, there doesn't have to be a full-on revolution, just a bit more openness and generosity. And I'll stop there. Thank you.